What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. Uh, I'm excited. We've got Andrew McCarthy. Uh, if you don't know who Andrew McCarthy is, uh, you may be a millennial, uh, and you should be listening to this. That's your fault. I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, dating ourselves. But uh, <laughs> Andrew, when his team reached out, and Michelle, who's 24, is like, hey, Andrew McCarthy wants to come on? And I'm like, and at first, she's like, who's Andrew McCarthy? I'm like, he's the Brat Pack. Of course, this is my genre. Bring him on. I told my sister who's older than me and she was all excited. But, um, you know, uh, if you don't remember that and they set, well, I mean, you guys were, you're, you were ranked within the top like 50, uh, you know, teen TV stars of all time, weren't you? I, it depends, I guess, you know, on VH1 or something like that, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but these guys set a, a genre for, uh, for teenage groups and uh, the films were just great. These are the films I grew up on. But I mean, more importantly, he was pivotal behind uh, the Orange Is the New Black, which is a which was a long running series on Netflix, and set records. And as Andrew will tell you, it has changed the way we watch TV. But uh, what I think I uh, I'm most excited to dive into is uh, is your travels. And I know you were a travel writer, and you're releasing a book here, and we'll get to that. But Andrew, welcome. A for for everyone, if you could give them the the you know the the cadets version of how you grew up and how that brought you to Hollywood. We'll take it from there. Uh, yeah. I grew up in Jersey and uh, yeah, at 15 years old, I was cut from the high school basketball team. And my mother told me to try out for the school musical. And I was like, I don't want to be in a musical. I want to be the point guard. And <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I did try out for the musical and I ended up being uh, cast as the artful Dodger and Oliver which and uh, it changed my life. I walked on stage at 15 years old in my high school auditorium and I suddenly was revealed to myself, you know, and uh, and I knew what I was going to do with my life. And uh, I knew it was important because I told no one, you know, it was one of those things that was just such a sort of personal white light experience that I, I knew it was a very frail thing. So I didn't tell anybody. I kept it my secret until it was sort of strong enough to have roots. And then uh, I did college for acting and then I. I kind of won the lottery. I went to an open call for a movie and uh, there was an ad in the newspaper looking for 18 vulnerable and sensitive to be the lead in a movie. And I was like, dude, that's me. And <laughs> anyway, I was cast in a movie uh, kind of plucked from the weeds and my career in Hollywood began. And what movie was that? It was called Class. It was in uh, 1982 uh, with to play Jacqueline Bissett's Young Lover, if you 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 were, you're probably too young to remember Jacqueline Visit, but I think Time Magazine at that time had called her the most beautiful film actress of all time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I played her young lover in the movie and uh, it was, that changed everything for me. What, what was it? You said your white light moment. What, what was it? Was it the audience? Was it that everyone no, it was, was so looking much, at yeah, you? It was, it was just sort of, I, you know, my wife is Irish and she has all these good Irish sayings. And one of them is I felt like myself from the toes up. I just walked out there and it was, I felt um, Tennessee Williams, the great American playwright has a thing talking about love. He said, it's as if a room that was always half in the dark was suddenly in the light. And that's what I felt when I acted the first time. I just felt like, Oh my God, there I am. And I didn't even know I was sort of half in shadow in my life before that. I, I it was just one of, when that revealed itself to me, I just felt comfortable in my skin for the first time in a way I hadn't before and knew I wanted to follow that feeling. You know, two points to that. One, did you go back to the bas basketball coach and thank him for coming? <laughs> <Yeah. in? laughs> 
the, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think there's a good point to take from that. Um, and I remember reading a book, uh, called, uh, range by David Epstein. And, and basically he was advocating for people, young people trying so many things because it creates such a broad range of experience, uh, that they're more equipped to deal with hardship and, and stress. Um, but I think, you know, that does apply to, to, you know, what I would recommend to people in their teenage years, their twenties is to try everything. You'll be surprised what sparks your passion. Well, and, that's and true. Fact, I think you have to find something when you're a teenager too. Often it's sports or music or something. If you don't find something as a teenager to help you get through that insane time, you know, people often turn to drugs and alcohol and stuff. They're going to turn to something. You need to have something to engage you on a deep level. And you also, you're exactly right. You have no idea what you're going to like and what you're not going to like. I said that to my nine-year-old the other day. I said, you haven't tried broccoli in a couple of years. You have no idea if you like it or not. And he said, well, I'm not trying it. <laughs> hey, that's like sushi for me when I was younger. I remember spitting it out. Um, so y y I know you live in New York. You were born on, on the East Coast. Uh, did that ca casting call happen in New York or did you have to go out to, uh, to LA? Well, I mean, it was, it was in New York. I had just been kicked out of college. I went to college for two years at NYU and I'd just been kicked out because uh, – I, I didn't go, basically. And uh, a friend of mine called me and said, there's an ad in the newspaper that they're casting this movie, you know, and anybody can go. You should go. It sounds like it's right. And so I did. I went and, you know, went, waited with 500 other 18 vulnerable and sensitive kids for hours and went in and met a casting guy. And 10, 10 auditions later, I was in the movies. That's insane. Um... It was insane. It was totally uh insane yeah and then when i was given the part and then i was they said well okay now you, you have the part except we have to fly you out to california to meet jacqueline Bissett to have her approve you and so i just remember going up to her house in the hollywood hills and just having her sort of give me the once over and you know i said something um, you know innocuous and she said oh he's cheeky i like him and i was like then i was in the movies <laughs> uh, so LA, i've always said we were born in north california northern california LA is just a, it, it's a great place. It's also a strange place. If you're not from there, it's, it is a unique culture, man. LA Very is unique. Own, it's, it's its own beast for sure. I mean, I've never really been that comfortable there. Uh, I, I think at certain points in my career, I certainly would have benefited from living there, but I just never could. I always just, I'd drive down Sunset Boulevard and I would look up at all the, the billboards of things and I'd be like, I never even heard about that movie. And I, all my resentments and envies would sort of flare when I was in LA. So I said, I got to go home. So you got thrust into Hollywood very early uh, because you were young. You started, you know, again, casting for these, these what I would call teen to, to young 20 roles. And you ended up in a genre uh, of films that, again, I mean, one, uh, I know you were tight with all, with all of them, the Brat Pack. Um, as you look back on that, uh, what, you know, what did you really learn from being a part of, uh, of that genre? I mean, well, you guys that, have to be wildly proud. I suppose it's come to that. That's a whole long story to unpack. But what, what we forget about now is that the Brat Pack and those youth teen movies that happened in the early mid 80s, that had never happened in Hollywood before. Hollywood entertainment was not about young people until that moment. You know, Hollywood discovered in the early 80s that kids went to the movies and went often and went a lot. They went five, six, seven times to a movie. Grownups go to a movie once. And they realized suddenly that kids are going to make them a fortune. 
And so they started making teen movies and that had never really happened before. Movies before that in the seventies were, and before were about grownups and grown up entertainment. And so when that change happened, it was like a seismic shift on the cultural landscape and it's never recovered from that. I mean, movies are still about an adolescent mentality. All the Marvel movies are all about, you know, they're, they're kid movies and they're adolescent and it's, we're used to it now and we just assume that's the way movies are, but it wasn't not always that way. And those 80s genre, John Hughes, Brat Pack movies started all that and changed the way entertainment is viewed. And, you know, that's not something you realize at the time when you're a young 21, 22 year old kid just trying to get a job. You just think, oh, I got another job. Great. And you, uh, and you scramble to get the next one. But looking back on it, it, um, it was a seismic sort of cultural shift that we didn't really, I certainly didn't uh, perceive to be a part of it. I just knew my life suddenly was very different. And, uh, you know, then there was the whole, the Brat Pack thing comes along and that came about because of a magazine article, a New York magazine, uh, a guy dubbed the term Brat Pack and talking about this group of young actors. And it was cast originally in a real aspersion and negative term Yes, of, um, as if we were just these entitled punks who just wanted to party and had no interest in really serious acting. And it was really detrimental to all our careers. We hated the term. All of us hated it and felt like we'd been blindsided by this, this guy. And um, what's interesting is that many things that I find interesting about it now, but, uh, you know, there was no social media. There was no nothing. It was one magazine article in one thing for one week. And within days, the country was using the term Brad Pack. And because it's such a good phrase and it took off. And, you know, 35 years later, it's still going to follow me. And when I'm introduced one of the sentences is going to be a Brat Pack member. You know, it's still there. So, and over the decades and centuries since that happened in the 80s, the Brat Pack has morphed from being kind of a real albatross to being this iconically affectionate term that we recall with rose-colored glasses about, you know, a certain generation recalls their youth in that. So that, that, that's interesting. I know when he wrote the article and, and based off the research, he basically was saying, hey, these are a bunch of privileged white kids that lack substance when it couldn't be further from the truth. And hey, got, you know, writers, uh, journalists, uh, it's their job to create controversy. Uh, but I do want to take it and pause for, for the listeners. If you don't know what the Brat Pack is, that, that's Emilio Estevez, of course, Andrew McCarthy, uh, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, Rob Lowe, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald. Um, I mean, this, again, was the crew that, that, that was in all these films, again, sort of creating this genre for our generation. But, um, you know, with the Brat Pack, and, and again, I know it's a term, and it, I, not to, to, to even compare myself to you, but, you know, I was a Navy SEAL for 20 years. Whenever anyone introduces me, it's always Navy SEAL. I mean, yeah. it's almost like it, it becomes like the, uh, the, the, the qualifier for who you are, but it is almost a, ter- it is a term of endearment now. Um, but that's interesting, you guys. So you guys hated the term right when it came out. Oh, yeah, everyone did. I mean, it was really a negative thing. I think it affected our careers in a negative way initially, uh, too. So, I mean, who wants to be called a brat? And who wants to be thrust in a pack? Particularly when you're a young actor, you want to be an individual. You want to be seen. I mean, I think well, any of us ever wanted to be seen. See me. See me. And I suddenly, I felt personally like I was not being seen then. And I was just being thought of in a, this way that had nothing to do with who I was. And so I, I personally didn't like it at, at all. And I didn't know how to, I didn't have the wherewithal to escape it in a certain way. So, uh, you know, but like I say, over time, 
I, you know, people of that generation will see me or look at me and their eyes kind of glaze over and they go, oh, the Brat Pack. And they'll, you know, they'll start recalling something about a movie. And really, they're talking about their own youth. And I've become, and other members of Brat Pack, the avatars of people of that generation's youth and looked at with great affection. And so it's like 180 degrees from where it started and to where it has landed now. And it took me decades, though, to sort of come to terms with that and realize that that was kind of a beautiful thing and not something to be uh, avoided. Which is exactly the way I opened up this podcast. And I meant it as a, as a term of endearment um, because you do. You know, it's, a, it's amazing. I don't know about you. For me, like, if I hear a song that comes on, I can tie that to an exact memory of my youth, high school yeah. or college or, or yeah. even young, young years in the, uh, the Marine Corps. And, and, and I love that. I love that, it, that it, it's so visceral. It evokes that memory. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I'm a sort of embodiment of that to a certain generation. They see me and they go, oh, my God. And they think about because there's no more sort of thrilling moment in life than when we're, you know, 18, 20. And you're just sort of your life is a blank slate to be written upon and anything can happen. And you're just it's like, get out of my way. I'm, I'm coming in their world. And, you know, to help people recall that moment or represent that to people, you know, that's it's a beautiful thing. So, you know, you can also almost call the Brat Pack a, a cultural phenomenon now. And, oh, it's and again, I know we, Yeah, yeah. It, and you wrote about this in, in your memoirs, uh, The Brat Pack in 80 Stories. Um, let me ask you this, because as these films started to come out and you all started to appear in, in multiple films together, how did that a, a affect the casting call? Or did films just naturally say, no, 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 we're bringing in, you know, uh, Andrew McCarthy and Emilio Estevez and, and Molly Ringwald? We already know who we want. I mean, we, did it start to work like that or did you still have to compete for these roles? I don't think I was offered a movie until I did a movie called Mannequin, which is I was offered for this. The first time I was offered a role, a role. And I took it simply because they offered it to me. And then I remember rereading the script and going, oh, my God, this is terrible. I got to get out of this movie <laughs> but because uh, I didn't have to audition for it. I wanted to do it. it. I think it's a lovely movie now. It actually it's a very simple, um, sweet, open hearted movie. But uh but one interesting thing about the Brad Pack is once that term was coined, we all, it, it kind of stopped the very thing that it was talking about because no one wanted to be in a movie together again after that. So the instant it came about, everyone scattered and wouldn't be in a movie. So all these youth ensemble films that were happening stopped because the term Brad Pack was invented. People suddenly didn't want to be in movies together. Now, it was always said you guys were, were close. Again, the cast characters I, I, I just sort of uh, named. Were, were you guys, in fact, in real world uh, close? Did you guys hang out? Was that your circle? In a word, no. I mean, I lived in New York, and uh, I was very much alone. Very few of my friends were actors. So, no, I hadn't. Uh, I never was. I thought they were nice people and fine, and you know, but they were not my friends in, in that uh, way, and I never really hung out. You know, I recently did... Um, that memoir you mentioned uh, that I wrote a few years ago, Brat, uh, it got me thinking that I had not seen any of these people in 30 odd years. So I, I made just in finishing making a documentary about the Brat Pack where I went and sort of sought out all the old gang and talked to, went to Emilio's house and talked to him for the, and hadn't seen him in 30 odd years. The same with Rob Lowe and Demi Moore and these, like I hadn't seen in decades and decades. And I went, 
to kind of say, this is my experience of the broad pack. This is what I felt then. This is what I feel now. What's your story with it? Because it affected all our lives in such a seismic way. We were like members of this club. We didn't ask to join. And I know it had, and it turned out it had a very similar effect on all of our emotional lives, if not our careers, you know? So, but it was a really interesting thing to go back and see everybody again, because I had, uh, and we all did, had much more affection for each other and for our own youth than I ever could have imagined. And so that was really a great feeling to kind of go back and really like to see Rob and just go, oh my God, dude, we did a movie together when we were 19 years old and we're now like old. <laughs> it's like, we're still here and to see you again. You know, it's a beautiful thing. It was really nice. You're, you're older, not old. Uh, no, dude, I just turned 60. Let me tell you something. 60 is the beginning of being old. And it's a really weird thing, particularly for someone, if, you're, if you were famous for being young, as I was, you know, and you sort of are that, for your whole life to suddenly be 60, it's like, oh my God, that's the beginning of old. How, where'd the middle go? <laughs> you know, so it was an interesting thing. I've never ever thought about age, you know, 40, 50, I didn't blink, but 60 kind of made me go, wow, what, what's going on here? And uh, it, it gave me pause for a few months there. And uh, now I've kind of, now I can see some benefits of it, but I, I just found it shocking. And I was shocked how shocked I was by it. Yeah. You wake up one morning, all of a sudden you're 40. You wake up one morning and you're all of a sudden you're 45. It's well, that time nothing. flies. That ain't nothing, uh, dude. Wait, you just wait. <laughs> hey, if, if I make it to 60, I will uh, contact your team and let you know, man. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, you were vulnerable and thank you. Uh, you know, I think the greatest thing anyone can do is pass along both what led to their success and also the obstacles they face. But, you know, you, 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 you were successful at a very early age and that brought fame and that brings complications. And in fact, I, my wife and I were just watching the Aaron Carter story. Um, who I think he what passed away at 35, uh, was, you know, received fame at a very early age, I believe nine. And it just sort of destroyed his life and led to substance abuse. And, and you talked about your, uh, your addictions in the struggle and fight for so sobriety. Um, and I know there's probably a lot of people that are young listening to this that want to break into Hollywood that 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 want that fame. And it's, maybe it's not necessarily fame. They want they want to work in Hollywood because of their passion for acting. What 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 would you tell them? Sort of the cautionary tale uh, that they have to be cognizant of as they step into these environments. Because I know fame, money, again, like I said, brings complications. Well, those are different things. I mean, I I was. Yeah, I, I'm an alcoholic. I, I stopped drinking 30 years ago. But um, I have always said that my uh, alcoholism and my abuse of alcohol was not caused by my success or fame or any of that stuff. I mean, it was not. Uh, I think I'm an alcoholic because I drank too much and I had a tendency to and I had an attraction to alcohol, you know, and that would have happened whether I was in the movies or not. I would I got to drink better vodka because I was in the movies and made money, you know, but, uh, I, I do not in any way, uh, blame my success, my, my alcoholism on my early success that I was too young perhaps, and didn't know how to parlay my success into something or didn't have the enough stable roots inside myself at that point to manage it appropriately. Uh, is there's little doubt, but I, I, I certainly never, my caution I told would be don't blame alcoholism on outside circumstances because it outside circumstances do not affect 
or cause alcoholism. That's just bullshit. And uh, people blame, you know, alcohol is cunning and we wants to blame all sorts of outside things for it. And alcoholism is itself. And if you, no matter what you're doing, it, you know, my success had nothing to do with uh, my alcoholism. And I'm always very adamant about that. But yes, it did. It certainly did. And it derailed my career and it derailed my life for years, my alcoholism. It took, took me several years to realize I had a problem and then several years to do something about it. There were years where I'd go, yeah, I'm addicted to alcohol. Drink up, you know. And um, I was also very, more to the point, I think I was very fearful in life. And it helped me deal with fear and keep fear at bay. Um, but alcohol is sort of, there's one of the sayings I like about alcohol is the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man, you know, and you don't know when that's going to happen. You know, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful. It's helpful. It lubricates socially. It makes you feel sexy, powerful, strong, all these things you might not feel in real life. And then slowly un, invisibly, it turns in on you and devours the very thing that it was trying, you thought it was helping. So, um, you know, it's a very slippery slope, alcohol. And something everyone has to navigate navigate for themselves. You know, I talk to my kids about this all the time. And, you know, also knowledge and awareness will never keep anybody from drinking and doing drugs. So anyway, that's my soapbox about that. I, I just think uh, alcohol is takes no prisoners and it's not um, fame or, or success that because you're not prepared for it. That That's not, uh, that's too easy. I, so... You just took me there with how you described and took full ownership uh, of your then substance abuse, because um, that is very counter to what you hear today. It's people like to, to blame external uh, you know, factors for, for, for their substance abuse or, or for their loss or failure. That's rare. And, and I'm gonna, Andrew, I appreciate that. And more people need to hear that. Um, you did say something. You said but there's great uh, freedom in that ahead. too. There's great freedom in just owning that, you know, and it, it you know, then as opposed to this or that. Because also, if I wanted to go on and for years, I, I kind of associated my being successful with. I didn't blame my alcoholism on success, but I associated them. I, I had an image in my mind, like as if one was a rock and the other was a, a sheet of metal that were soldered to each other. So I always thought if I became, after I was, had stopped drinking for a number of years, I, I harbored a doubt that if I became successful again, I would start drinking again. And I, it took me years for that to kind of, that image of that piece of metal soldered to a rock to dissolve and realize they had nothing to do with each other. So it allowed me the freedom then to be successful again and to have my own, you know, it took my, the power back as opposed to giving the power to alcoholism. I, I'm, it's going to prevent me from being successful because it will make me drink nonsense. If that makes any sense. You know? No, it, it, it does. Cause, cause again, when you, when you, one, I've seen that my failures in life are rarely, rarely, uh, driven by external factors in, in almost predominantly 99% of the time are driven by my decisions. Yeah. And often yeah. our decisions are based in fear. And fear, I think, is our big enemy. And fear is the thing that we, that drives us so much that we, and people don't acknowledge fear because it, it, it sounds like weakness and no one wants to admit being weak. And so, you know, I think fear is the real enemy for so many of us. And I think, you know, a lot of people manifest, fear manifests, cover it with anger. And there's all sorts of anger going on in the world. And that, because anger feels better and more in control than fear feels. 
you know, but but anger, in my experience, is always, always, always based in fear. And fear is the real enemy here. It, it, you couldn't be, you, you couldn't be more on point. And, and to blame others, point fingers and cast blame, which does nothing but waste time. You're basically disregarding the faculties in that you are ultimately in, you know, in control of your life. Um, and well, you're responsible the majority for it. Outcomes. I don't know if you're in control of it, but you're responsible for it. You know? Yes. Yes. You, you did say something when, when, when we started, you said, I've been 30 years uh, clean, but I'm an alcoholic. What, if, if I can ask, why, why do you still refer to yourself as an alcoholic? Well, you know, once a, once a, once a pickle, you can't become a cucumber again. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I think, you know, I used up my drink chips a long time ago and any good alcoholic who doesn't drink will tell you that, you know, all bets are off for tomorrow, you know, to think you've got some, and there's great, again, great freedom in that. Mm -hmm. um, and it just reminds me that that's, you know, part of my daily life. I don't, I, I often don't think about it for days, weeks on end. And, you know, it's just, I don't care when people around me drink. Uh, and, but it's, you know, it's, not something I was. If I were to pick up a drink now, I have no doubt that I would be drinking a quart of vodka a day again within days, weeks perhaps, but probably days. I still see that obsessive personality of mine and my own, you know, my thinking and my emotionality. It's all, it's all still there, and that's fine because you can sort of parlay it into useful things too. Um, but it's. You know, everything is still, there is no past. You know, it's all still living inside us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, it reminds me of, the, you know, know thyself. You yeah. got to know your weaknesses. You got to know your, uh, you and it's know not both even, strengths and your weaknesses. It's right. not even, you know, what's that great phrase, the cracked vase lasts longest. There's, it's become my greatest source of strength without there question. Not only that I've re recovered from it, recovering from it, but that it actually happened in the first place. Because from that, everything has, that the, the depths to which I emotionally and internally sank through that have become my greatest strength, you know, and that and it's given me empathy for other people. It's given me sort of a, a innate, not innate, it's given me a, a humility that I, you know, often don't access, but that the truth is, hey, buddy, you're just, you have clay feet like everyone else and everything. So it's, it, it is my, the it itself is my greatest strength. Recovering from it is fantastic, good. I can get on with life and have opportunities, but the nub of it, the alcoholism, that disease itself is actually the strength. It's, and, and that it no longer rules me is, you know, great freedom. You talked about fear. And I, you know, I know there's, there's a great difference between internalized fears and external fear, which comes from fear of judgment. When you're throwing, and, and I'll give you an example for me, you know, nobody knows who the hell I am and that's fine. I, you know, uh, I've written two books, but even when I get a, a bad review, like a three-star review and, and I read the review, like it, it still hits me hard. And, and you know, one of the things I, I hate about reviews is, man, I wish I could talk to that person just to hear them out because they, they, they probably got some nugget uh, where I'd agree with them and I can improve my performance in, in, in my, my next writings. Um, but to be young in Hollywood, and as you said, and we looked it up, David Blum was the one who wrote that, uh, the article. Hmm. Um, that's gotta be overwhelming when you've got so many people writing about you, both good. And I know there's good, but how did, how did the negativity 
impact you at, at a young age? Did, did you learn to disregard it? And again, another example is you always hear Joe Rogan says, yeah, I don't read reviews or comments anymore. Well, I don't know that you can ever, maybe some people can disregard it. I, I do read them less and less um, because the good ones are never going to be good enough and the bad ones are always, you know, hurt. <laughs> and so, and I found myself having a thinner skin the older I get. You know, it's often why I stopped acting a lot and did other things is because I wasn't going to put myself in a position to be rejected by someone I didn't respect. And so um, I, I find them of less interest, actually, reviews. Sometimes they have a good point and they sort of are saying it in a bad way because they need to be provocative and, and have a personality on on paper or on screen, too, to have, you know, for their style of reviewing. But sometimes they have a point and but a lot of times it's just like, who cares what you think? <laughs> you know, the older I've gotten, I, I have grown to believe and know to be the case that the doing of the work is the reward. If it's successful, that's great because it just allows me easier opportunity to do the next thing that I want to do. But the reward itself is in the dirt, you know, and yeah. that is, and that I've learned to enjoy the actual doing of it is my greatest freedom. And so, yes, you want to have a good review and, and it to sell and to be successful so that it makes it easier for people to ask you to do the next one. So you don't have to push a rock up a hill, but I have finally overall, you know, going to believe what my teachers always told me at the beginning. There's the reward is the work. And that, I think whatever work you're doing. And I think that's deeply true because it's also, uh, that's, all you yeah. have. that's all you have. If you're waiting for validation from outside, it, you can never tell me I'm great enough. You can never tell me I'm sexy enough. You know what I mean? All that stuff. You, it's impossible to fill that. So, you know, it's just got to take it off the table at a certain point. Uh, I've always found that the, the, best le uh, the best lessons and the most enjoyable moments were the journey, not the destination. And I know that sounds like a freaking postcard, but I've never felt pride once we got to the end of a major project or major mission. Uh, but as I've grown older, I've learned to reflect on where we started and where we ended. And that's the, that's the beauty of it. Um, now, you beat the odds having entered into Hollywood so young where some people just sort of fade uh, into the shadows. And, and I know some want that. But you, as you said, you decided to act less. But you dove into directing and writing. And most notably, again, uh, The Orange is the New Black, which was a record-setting uh, show on Netflix and as you said has sort of changed the way we watch TV uh, how did you even get involved with Orange is, is the New Black and, and talk about that because it was a it was an awesome series I remember we used to binge on that overseas on uh, on deployments yeah I mean that's it was a terrific show I, I had nothing to do with creating it um, Jenji Cohen did that um, but I was uh, I had just started a directing career and it was, I had directed a show for a friend of mine was the producer on it, or someone I knew at the time, we weren't a friend yet. And they asked me if I would want to do an episode because they couldn't get anyone to direct it because it was on this thing called Netflix, which it was like, well, what's Netflix? Don't they mail DVDs? I mean, how, how, what's it going to be on? Well, they're going to stream it. Well, okay, fine. But what channel is it going to be on? You know, we didn't know. Any, so nobody wanted to direct the show, which had been, because nobody knew what it was going to, how it was going to be seen. And so I said, well, I, I'll do it. You know, and so I did a bunch of them the first season. And then suddenly, and I remember being in the producer's office when they announced, uh, when they said, you know, and they're going to release them all on the same day. 
And I remember sitting and I said out loud at the time, well, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And, you know, I was right again. And then suddenly the show gets on and Netflix goes through the roof and it's this sort of cultural touchstone and it changes the way stories are told on TV now, you know, because now we tell these one big stories as before that didn't used to be, rarely was the case. So it was a wonderful thing to be involved in uh, right at the ground floor. And it was wonderful, particularly with, um, and I directed all through the, the seven years it was on, I'd come back and do the show often and to watch the ladies who were just so thrilled to be there at the beginning sort of blossom into these, these divas and stars, you know, it's so interesting how success affects people. You know, it makes some people more themselves and other people get swept away. It, was it different directing pretty much? And it wasn't all, but a predominantly female uh, cast. No, I mean, the actors are actors, you know, and I, I have yeah. every actor neurosis there is. So I understood them completely. And a lot of them were quite green and hadn't done a lot of things before. So, you know, it was, you forget now, but back then, what's that, eight, nine years ago, I guess, when it came on, and mm -hmm. it was maybe more 10. Um, there were very few parts that were non-white. And, you know, if you were non-white, you were playing a maid, basically, or something, you know what I mean? It, largely. And it's, that's how quickly things have changed. But, um, and, and Orange is one of the shows that helped launch that happening. So, it, but it was, as far as working, it was just actors are actors. And, you know, a lot of them were very green and young and, and inexperienced. So, and like I say, I, I know all the actor tricks and fears and anxiety. So I was able to communicate with them very easily. So they uh, liked me and trusted me. You know, as an actor, you, you start with, you know, two strikes for you, not against you when you're directing because actors know, oh, you're one of us. Okay. You know? So and they all knew who you were. They, they, they knew your past. Did, did you find a lot of them? You said they were green, come to you one-on-one uh, -on -one for coaching or mentoring or, or advice uh, throughout the series? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, and it's not, that's not my place. You know, I'm just here to, again, it's like nobody listens to anything anyway. People just watch you and walk. What learn by example things. So, I mean, if I taught them anything, it's just the way I work. It's just sort of, yeah. is it, we're going to work now. We're not messing with this. Isn't it's, we're going to work and work is great and it's fun, but we're working, you know. So, some people who are scattered would suddenly go and focus in. And so, that was nice to be able to lead by example in that way. But it's like, this is working we're doing now. We're not, this isn't about getting fluffed and puffed and being getting a lot of attention. We're trying to figure out how to make this scene work. So, focus over here. Is what we're doing. You, you just said the my, my my favorite three words lead by example, which leadership is about behavior, and that is what we call the gold golden rule rule of the uh, the military. So, do you consider yourself when it's time to work, like no more small talk? We're focused. We're lasered in. Um, I mean, are you 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 do you have a certain operational rigor when it's go time? You know, the answer is yes, and it took me a long time to own that that I know how to go to work. You know, not everyone knows how to go to work. You know, like you were just saying, so it's like when it's time to go, get out of the way because we're going and get on board and it's over here. We're right here now. We're not anywhere else, guys, we're over here. Come on. And whether it's, I don't know, you know, I can only imagine what you did in the military, but I imagine it's the same kind of thing. Focus here, go and be ready to go. And when your opportunity comes, be ready because it's not gonna come a second time. 
You know, so that's one of the things like when I was young, I had this opportunity and I wasn't particularly emotionally ready. Whether my acting talent was ready or not is debatable, but that I emotionally wasn't ready. There's no question, you know. Uh, so I learned from that. And so when I got other opportunities later, I knew go back to the work and be ready to go. When the call comes, be ready to go and step into it. And you have to. And even if you, in a, you know, I direct a lot of television now and I have a many, I have a lot of people, what they call shadowing new people come and watch me direct so they can learn how to do it. And because I've directed like a hundred hours of television now. And so I know how to do it because I've been on a movie set and TV set my whole life and I've directed lots of different shows and I do it a lot. So I know how to do it. And I have an aptitude for it. And what I say to people who are coming in and watching, I go, look, at 7 a.m., 50 people are going to look at you and go, what are we doing? And if you don't know, you fake it. You go, we're here. Everybody, we're here. We're doing this. Go. And you can have somebody come up to you and whisper and go, Andrew, it would be better if we did it over there. And you can change your mind, but but you have to make a decision and you have to go. And, you know, like, you know this better than me, I'm sure. And you have to, then you're accountable for that decision. So, and that's a wonderful feeling to have that opportunity. But, and you have to step into it. You can't kind of set at seven o'clock when 50 people look at you, go, what do we do? You can't go, huh, I don't know. Let's, um, let's see. You know, in that instant, the entire crew will—you'll lose them. You will lose everyone. They'll go, "Oh, jeez." You know what I mean? Uh, it, it doesn't matter what profession you're in. Uh, you know, I—I I had Sammy Hagar on, who, God, what, what, a, what a great episode like this. But you know, I asked him. I said, "Hey, were you just more talented than uh, than all the other vocalists?" He said, "By no means." He's like, "Was I on par?" Yeah, but I outworked them all. While they were out drinking, I was in the studio singing. And it's, it's the same. Every person I've had, Bernie Marcus, you know, the billionaire founder, CEO of, uh, of Home Depot, everyone attributes their success, not to their innate talent, but rather the amount of focus, discipline, and hard work that they put in. And everyone wants to be a director until they probably shadow you, shadow you and realize it's 7 a.m. until 12 p.m. And they're like, yeah, I don't want this. I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, Ben Hogan, the great golfer, used, uh, said, people say, what's the secret? And he goes, the secret's in the dirt, meaning he just practiced over and over and over and over. And then so when the game time comes, you just automatically hit that shot, you know? And it's, and it's you know, it's this, and there's no, there's nothing to boast about. It's just knowing how to, and luckily, the beauty of going to work and working hard is that it's very stabilizing and grounding. So when you, when the shit hits the fan, you can just go back to that. And it's, it's great relief in work. I found as I've gotten older, that's just the great relief of work. And, and again, we just societally, we're, we're seeing people struggling to find their passion or, or the inability to find relief in work. I, I, I don't know if this is my, my nurturing, my raising by my parents. Part of my DNA is found in in work, and I can tell and sense it with you. One, you found your passion, but you still pride yourself in just working hard. And once you can, I, I find that life's a lot more enjoyable. I don't, I don't actually hate coming into work. I love it. I look forward to it. I can't wait to get out of bed. Um, so no, it's good to, good to hear somebody from a completely different profession say that. But uh, Andrew, I do want to get into. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Brick. Yeah, I just yeah. Say, I always say it's just like brick. You know, you're just like brick, <laughs> you know, you go to work and cement it up, put it in, make a nice corner next, do it again. 
You know, sometimes inspiration hits and you lay a beautiful brick, but most of the time you're just, you're doing what you know. You're laboring. Yeah, you can't see it, but the white board says, get shit done. The black board says, make shit happen. <laughs> and the, but the one behind me says, uh, do it all again tomorrow. That's the warrior way. Uh, and warriors <laughs> about being a mindset, not a, not the profession of arms. Um, Andrew, so you do have a passion, which, uh, Hey man, this is one of my passions travel early on in your career. Were you traveling or did that, was that something you started doing when you started to step outside acting? I know you became actually a travel writer an award-winning, uh, travel writer. Uh, that seems like an odd leap from acting to, to, to travel writer. Yeah, I'm not a very good businessman. It's pretty downwardly mobile. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that started because uh, in the early 90s, after my sort of acting career of that, that flutter that happened when I was young that we were talking about in the Brad Pack and all that, and then I stopped drinking, got my life together a little bit. And then uh, I walked across the Camino de Santiago, which is this ancient pilgrimage route in Spain. I walked 500 miles across Spain, and that was a real life changer for me. Um, and that's to go back to fear. There was a moment in that when I sort of broke down in the middle of a field of wheat walking across Spain and had this sort of white light experience and realized how much fear had been a dominant factor in my life, you know, and so much so that I was never aware of its existence until that moment of its first absence, you know, and that really changed my life. Fear doesn't go away the minute you recognize it, but it, anything you can kind of see like that, it loses the it's blind power over you. So I'm then able to sort of see when it's seeping in and creeping up on me. So it liberated me from the dictatorial rule of fear in a real way. And so I, anyway, I started to make a long story longer. I started traveling a lot because I loved the feeling. I felt like myself suddenly when, when that fear was lifted from me, I felt like myself. I felt the same way I felt when I was 15 years old and I walked out on stage and went, Oh my God, there I am. That's what I want to be. And I felt myself in that field of wheat in Spain. I'm like, Oh my God, there I am without fear. Here I am. And so I wanted more of that feeling and I got it when I was traveling. So I kept traveling and I traveled the world alone a lot. And I think traveling alone is a really important thing and is life changing and people don't do it because hey, they're afraid. And, uh, Anyway, so I started writing about my travels for myself, not journaling, because I, I didn't like journaling, I it, found it indulgent, but I started writing about people I met, things I did, and eventually that grew into a travel writing career. I started writing for a magazine. I met an editor and I said, dude, you ought to let me write for your magazine. And he said, you're an actor, dude. And I said, yeah, but I can tell a story. That's what I do. And if you don't like it, you don't have to pay me. And he said, oh, I can live with that. So anyway, I wrote an article for a magazine, then I wrote another, and then it just took off and on at a life of its own and became this sort of accidental second career. And, you know, I loved doing it. There was no one who loved doing it more than I did. And that always shows if you love your work, it shows. And so, uh, and it made me feel like myself. I felt like myself when I did it. And that's all I ever wanted in life was to feel my, the best version of me. Right. And so I became a travel writer and I sort of worked with national geographic travel for years and, uh, and I loved it. And, uh, that grew into books and whatnot. And it's been a great sort of, it was a great creative rebirth for me in a time when I needed it. What was it about that? So I'm a proponent of travel. I think everyone should travel more, especially outside the United States because it yeah. broadens your perspective. It gives you, one, perspective is huge. I I do find myself fortunate to have traveled to so many horrible places uh, where there are great people, horrible places, great people, war-torn, 
but it broadened my perspectives every time I came back to the United States. I'm like, okay, what am I complaining about? I, I just saw a uh, probably a four year old boy and a six year old uh, girl uh, in the Kumbu region of Nepal uh, bathing in 50 degree weather, and they weren't uh, screaming their heads off because if I jump in that water, you see me jump right out. What was it about travel that you enjoyed so much? Was it the growth in learning or was it simply seeing new sites and talking to people, culture? What was it? Well, I used travel as sort of a university of my life. You know, I, I, I was revealed to myself the more, the further from home I got, the more at home in myself I became, you know, whenever I travel. And I think travel elicits a sense of wonder in us. Um, and that when we have a sense of wonder, we're open again, we're open hearted again. We're not cynical. We're not too cool for school. And all that wonder is a very open feeling and open hearted feeling. And I think that's, uh, we could all use a little bit more of that. I mean, Mark Twain had the great line, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow mindedness. And I think, I do think when you say traveling out of the country, I think Americans should travel much more than we do. I think America is a great country. I'm proud to be American. I wouldn't want to be anything else but American. But I think America is also very, very fearful in many ways. And we're sold a bill of goods about how the rest of the world, that it's to be feared and they're after us. And that's bullshit. And it's not my experience. And there are amazing people out there. <laughs> they may not agree with our government, but they. The, what's interesting is many people in the world, as you can attest to, I'm sure people can tell the difference between the government and the people. Like we just lump them all in one thing. Whereas other people go, I don't really like your government, but you're what Americans are wonderful because we're open, we're interested, we're curious, we're polite, you know? And so I, I just think travel, if more Americans traveled, the world would be a very different place. What's 38% of Americans have passports. Half of us have ever used them. I think if Americans got off the couch and went out into the world, you'd see that guy's not, doesn't hate you, isn't trying to kill you probably. I'm talking not the work that you did, but I'm talking about the people. And I think they'd come back different and changed by that. And I think we should make up our own minds about what the world is like and who's in it and not being sold a bill of goods by people who have a very specific agenda to keep us fear-based. Though uh, Travel is the university of life. I am stealing that from you. I love that. That is, it's poetic. No, hey, you're right, dude. So, you know, it's easy to say, if I went to war to Iraq and Afghanistan so often that I hate these type of people. No, it's not. What, what I found was, you know, when you talk to the people over there, one, they didn't choose to be in a war-torn country. Uh, two, there is such a shared commonality. Uh, when you talk to a father uh, in Iraq, he just wants peace and prosperity for his family. That's it, which is no different than any Americans. Uh, you talk about, and this took me a while. Uh, when I left the military, you know, pretty much 20 years in special operations, uh, it was a good business mentor that looked at me and said, Mike, not everyone's an enemy. And it sort of been mm. read into me. Mm. That's, and, a good line. That's a good line. And, uh, well, again, I'm going to tie it back to something else. It's so funny, but there, there are more commonalities between humans than there are differentiators. And the fact that government is run by this elite pool for every country that has their own agenda, naturally they want to pin us against China. And there's a, there's a mentor of mine who was a four-star admiral and uh, you know he said, we, we, we have to stop looking at China as an enemy. They're a pure competitor, but there are some things we can consider a joint venture where we can better the world. And it just creates, you gotta have dialogue, man. 
you just got to enter dialogue and you can always find common ground. But if you view everyone as an enemy, it's a zero-sum game. Somebody wins, meaning with a zero-sum game, someone has to lose. I just had uh, Renee Morbon on. She wrote Blue Ocean uh, Shift, which is one of the top-selling business strategy books. And it talked about you know, creating these new market spaces. And we often use the word disruption, but when you use the word disruption to enter into an existing market space, that means you're coming into a pool that's already has multiple competitors. And basically you're saying, I'm going to disrupt your company in order to take a piece of the market share. And no company is going to say yes to that. They're going to be like, no, we're going to fight you tooth and nail. Well, she's saying true innovation is going where there is no uh, marketplace that you don't disrupt other companies force people to lose jobs uh, and disrupt society. And it was, and we just had her on and her book release uh, beyond disruption uh, this, this, this Tuesday um, or, or yesterday. And again, it's amazing. It reframed. I'm like, you know what? That is genius because so many business leaders are like, Hey, we're going to go into the space and they're our enemy when they're not. Um, that that's, I appreciate that, man. It's good hearing that from, uh, from you. Uh, and it creates an internal space too. Like you do your thing, I'm going to do my thing, and we're not in competition. There's 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 this idea that there's only so much of the pie, and I'm getting mine, and you are not getting it. And that kind of you can just feel the tension in that, and the negativity, and the the, the strain in that. And we all it's easy to fall into that, but I I think certainly creativity doesn't operate that way. And um, original thinking doesn't operate in that with that kind of tension. Um, I think there's something else. There's a broader, roomier way to operate. It is. It's studying other cultures, but more importantly, going to see those cultures in action and talk with people is just, it's, it is a spiritual uh, experience. And uh, I'm appreciative for the opportunities because I know financially some people just don't have that opportunity and that, that, uh, that, that sucks. Um, do you still intend to travel? You still make every opportunity to travel as much as you can? Mm, with, I do. Uh, yeah, I, just came back, I just came back from Botswana two days ago. I was there doing an article for a magazine. I took my nine-year-old son with me and we were in Botswana. Yeah. What, what was the one thing he learned? Is there something in particular he took away from that, from that trip? Well, how deep to dig the hole in the ground where he had to take a poop. <laughs> <laughs> It makes it makes you feel appreciative for what you have when you get home. Well, and it also beside that, yes, of course, but also that you can do that and take care of yourself out in the world, mm-hmm. and that you're safe out in the world. And then when you feel safe out there, you feel an internal safety, and so you don't have that kind of strain. So, um, yeah, I mean that was, and yes, of course, you come home and you go, "This is great," <laughs> you know, of course, because we are very blessed and lucky here. But, you know, there's also something in the, you know, with all the stuff we have, it, it takes us away from ourselves in a very real way. There's something about digging a hole and taking shit in the ground that's deeply satisfying, you know. Again, even if it's not travel, let's say you can't travel, find a way to get out into nature. Nature's next to God. Well, nature will change the way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, so I, I've got to assume you also got heavily into photography as well uh, with, with your travels. I don't. I'm not a great photographer. No, I, I, I don't. They're different beasts, you know, writing about it and photographing are different sort of jobs and different mindsets. So I'm, I don't uh, and I don't have the technical facilities for that kind of thing. 
But do you try to document anything uh, yeah. photographically? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. Uh, I, th I thought, you know, Buddy just bought a Leica. Uh, they're beautiful cameras, but. Oh, they are um, beautiful cameras. Yeah. yeah. Expensive. Well, um, you know, Andrew, uh, I know one, you've got a new book coming out next week, next Tuesday. Uh, mm. Tell us a little bit about that um, and why you're so excited to, uh, to share that with the world and what you hope they can take away from it. Well, you know, it's a lot of all what we've been talking about. The books are called Walking with Sam. It's a, it's a walk I took about that, the Camino de Santiago that we were talking about earlier that I did 25 years ago. I took it this last year with my son, my 19-year-old son, and we walked across Spain for 500 miles together. And it was uh, in an effort to kind of transform our relationship from one of you know, father-child to sort of adults. You know, I, my relationship with my dad ended when I was 17 and left the house and we never had one for the rest of his life. And I didn't want that to happen with my kids. So we walked across Spain together and all the things really that we've been talking about and finding space for ourselves and for each other and discovering who we really are as people, as opposed to the dynamic that had existed in our home, which was loving and, and good, but it wasn't, I was still the dynamic of father, child, parent, child, and trying to sort of transform that in a way to see, let me, I see you, I see who you are as a young man. And you, I'm allowing you to see me as a flawed person with clay feet, who's trying their best in the world, just as you are, you know, as opposed to the dad who knows everything, you know? And so it's a book about, you know, the journey, the physical journey and the emotional one that we took uh, across, across Spain for 500 miles. I love that native American tribes do that for their young man. They hold a, a, a ceremony where they, they see them, they recognize them now, not as a child, but as a man, and I mm. think that is, again, spiritual. It, I think it, it helps with the maturation uh, of young men and young women. Um, and it and helps I, us to see them, to stop seeing them as children and to and see them as, if we don't hold them as men and women, then, you know, they're going to turn away from us because you're like, you don't see me. So I'm not allowing you in. And all I want is my kids to be allowed in, <laughs> you know, and allow them in to me. Oh, powerful. Uh, powerful. Um, how long did it take to write that book? The book, you know, I wrote a draft in four months, messed around for several months, got some, it takes about a year. It took you a year. Okay. Yeah. Much, much quicker than I am. It takes me about two years to turn out a book. Uh, uh, not as skilled or, or astute as, uh, as you. Well, Andrew, I, I can't yeah. thank you enough for the opportunity. I learned so much about you that again, I, I didn't know, um, appreciate, uh, the fact that, you know, and, and I, I say this for a lot of uh, people in my, my genre, you were a part of our youth and that is, that is awesome. You evoke certain memories, but we end this podcast in a certain way. Uh, one, we believe in, in breadcrumbs. You talk to people who, who, who've met with both success and failure. They, they'll give you breadcrumbs to follow. Some will work for you. Some won't. Um, we ask people much like you would look at your children and say, Hey, if you do these three things, these tenets, uh, you, they'll, they'll, they'll lead to a higher probability of success. What have been those three things for you that you consistently stick with? I mean, you said hard work. Is that when it's time you, you grind? What are those three things that, that you would hope those lessons you'd pass to your, uh, your kids? Show up. Um, find your, I, most thing I would say, you know, what I try and give my kids is to learn to recognize your inner voice and follow it. 
And that's all you have at the end of the day is that internal guidance and learn to recognize it and trust it. That's powerful. And I know, I know you talked about the white light moment, um, both first on stage at a young age and then uh, on the walk with, uh, with, with Sam, uh, I know years earlier, but uh, additionally, the last question, you know, you've lived one hell of a life, uh, you know, millions have watched you millions at the end of the day. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want, want people's memories of you to be? What impact would you have wanted to have on the world? Dude, am I that old? Um, <laughs> no, no, no. We're talking 40 years, 40 years from now, 50 uh, years, maybe. You know, I always say when people ask me things, I, I always say it's none of my business. You know, I really don't. I, I think that's just sort of this grand self, you know, regard. And it's none of my business. You know, I just show up, suit up and show up and the chips fall where they may, you know, and it's not for me to say. That That is, you know what, you're not the first one to say that. And that is absolutely fair. Oh. Okay. Is, uh, no, 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 it's, it's good. You know, some people, it's like saying, you know, uh, are you a good leader? I don't know. That's for other people to determine. And I have no effect on their perceptions or, or their opinions. So, well, you know, that, Andrew, that, that, that strike me as a bit disingenuous, I think at times, because people do know if they're good leader, because that's your active part of your job. And certainly, but, um, but I do think it's none of our business what people think of us. What, once you understand that that's powerful is people's perceptions of me are no concern of mine. Um, that, that is theirs and they're entitled to that much like free speech. And, and I love that. Um, where can people find the book again? It's out next Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, it's out May 9th. So, uh, whenever, uh, you know, wherever books are found online. Yeah. In stores, yeah. The, the, the typical answer. Okay. Amazon, anywhere else, guys, go look it up. We'll drop all the links, uh, walking with Sam. I, I'm excited for it because one, I think that is a beautiful thing between a son and a, uh, a father and that you took the time to walk 500 miles across, uh, across Spain. Andrew, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And for everyone, this has been the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior. I'm your host, Mike Sorelli. Again, we'll see you next time.